2: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This episode of The Hash is sponsored by CypherTrace, a MasterCard company. this is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to The Coindesk Podcast Network.
0: Welcome to the show. It's Coindesk TV. You're looking at me, Zach Seward. We're doing a solo show today. It seems like that's going to be fun. You guys ready for this thing? I'm going to welcome in... My lovely co hosts, Wendy O, David Morris. There they are. Whew, thank goodness. No, I was many. worried there for a minute. We're here to get you up to speed on the crypto news. We're going to do it as a team. Let's do this thing. I'm leading off today. We're going to talk about Paul Tudor Jones. He was kind of one of those early Bitcoin bulls from the world of traditional finance back in 2021. Now he has some fresh comments on Bitcoin <laughs> in the US facing regulatory headwinds and, quote, real problems given the climate in DC. We're going to talk about that and more. He also made some comments about the macroeconomic picture, given that he thinks that the Fed is going to stop all those interest rate hikes that have been suppressing activity in markets. But we'll talk to that second. All right, the Bitcoin comment. I have a thought, but I want to throw it to Wendy on this one. What do you think? PTJ was one of those initial profits of uh, the TradFi world who got into Bitcoin not long ago. What do you think about these latest comments?
2: I don't think anybody is like a prophet when it comes to crypto and Bitcoin. I mean, people, when they started using Bitcoin originally, like way, way back in the day, it was meant to make secure private transactions online for specific things. So and things have evolved. The narrative continues to change. But I do like to see some guys from traditional finance coming into the space. I don't trust them as far as I can throw them. And I do agree with a lot of his thoughts that crypto is going to surge due to the current economic state, especially in the United States of America. So, and when I say surge, you guys, I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight. I'm not saying it's going to happen now. I am simply saying it takes time. But number should potentially go up.
0: <laughs> I mean, I got a counter take on this one. I mean, this kind of commentary kind of puts him in opposition to prominent Bitcoin maxis such as Michael Saylor, who have been saying that hey, the regulatory stance in the U.S. toward Bitcoin specifically has actually been favorable through this crackdown, right? You have SEC chair Gary Gensler saying, hey, Bitcoin, it's the one true commodity. It doesn't have an issuer. It's decentralized enough relative to Ethereum and others out there in the market, which may be more securities-like. So I think that this kind of puts him in opposition to what, in my opinion, may be the more informed take relative to the regulatory conversations going on in D.C. right now. Uh, But it's interesting to hear him say this. I think probably, you know, those general headwinds are true. But specifically for Bitcoin, and you see this from a lot of the Bitcoin maxis, they say, well, the SEC is looking favorably at Bitcoin and not at Ether. And therefore, that's advantageous to us for the long run, as all these other coins face significant
1: uncertainty.
2: David, do you want to say something? I kind of have to push back against Zach right now, though.
1: Well, go for it and then I'll follow up.
2: Okay. So this is the thing. If we have the SEC and other regulatory bodies pushing back against crypto as a whole, Bitcoin as a whole, then we lose a lot of these centralized exchanges as we're starting to see, even the ones that are the most compliant. So where would one go to actually purchase Bitcoin and then move it to cold storage? It's going to be a lot harder for these guys to operate as well. Now, when we're talking about Bitcoin in 2023, we have Bitcoin ordinals and now we have BRC20 tokens. So it's going to be very interesting to see (laughs) how the SEC is going to deal with it. Because when you think about it and you compare Ethereum and Bitcoin together, even though They're very, very different. They do have some slight similar characteristics.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I'll just agree with all of that because, you know, the point Wendy makes is that Bitcoin is not, frankly, a self-supporting ecosystem. Uh, No less of a maximalist than Jesse Powell at Kraken has said that uh, Bitcoin doesn't pay the bills for them as an exchange. It does have second-order impacts if you start clamping down on Bitcoin. But I do think that he's right or that the long-term picture for Bitcoin is good. But in terms of, you know, the short-term price is supported by a lot of this activity that the SEC is cracking down on. I want to also comment on, I think think Paul Tudor Jones is also frankly wrong about the Fed and interest rates. We're still sitting at a CPI growth of 4.9% according to the data that I just checked. I mean, the Fed is not joking about wanting to get down to 2%. That's a real thing. And so I just don't think he's right about saying that we're going to stop hiking. The Fed is not going to say like, oh, we've been going down, so we're going to just assume it'll keep going down and everything is fine. They're going to keep pushing, I think. So, so I think he's, he's wrong on that one, frankly. Are we moving on? Do we have another story up?
2: It's me. It's my turn. This is actually a really good story. I'm excited about it. I covered this at like 3 a.m. in the morning because I was up because I'm still... Well, I am kind of back on California time from Estonia. That's neither here nor there, but I'm very happy to see that the SEC seeks to slash $22 million fine on crypto firm Library to $111,000, okay? I want to give you guys some stats from the story because context is very important. Before Ripple versus the SEC, which everybody seems to care about so terribly much, there was Library versus the SEC or the SEC versus Library. And again, I feel like Library was just a little bit too early when they did their ICO. I feel like they had a great concept, a great idea. But unfortunately, there's not friendly, the United States of America is not a friendly territory for entrepreneurs, especially in tech at this current time. But basically, March 2021, the SEC filed a civil suit against Library. They said that the firm LBC sales were unregistered securities offerings, and they asked for $22 million in disorgment and for the court to order Library to halt any further token sales. The SEC won the case in November of 2022, obviously. And in December 2022, the library said it was going to likely be gone in the near future, being destroyed by legal and the SEC. And the SEC wants to revise the $22 million penalty, which I think that they should 100%. I don't even know how much money the library has actually wasted on fighting against the SEC when all the SEC needed to do, in my personal opinion, was say, hey, you needed to do this. Let's go back and fix this. So that's my opinion. David's nodding his head. I feel like he's going to agree with me. (laughs) Maybe just a tiny bit, so I'm gonna to toss it to him.
1: Well, I certainly agree with you on on the principle that you laid out there of of the better way to deal with this. I do have to say, uh unfortunately I have to point out that the headline here is a little bit more optimistic than the substance, which is that, you know, you read this and you think, oh, the SEC is gonna go a little bit easier on us. Um, but the reason they're slashing the penalty is because Libri is bankrupt. Don't misinterpret this. Sadly, they would have taken their $22 million if they uh, could have gotten it, but they're only stepping back because the money just isn't there. Zach?
0: Yeah, it cites near-defunct status of this platform. So this is kind of that mercy kill. This isn't the SEC rethinking that its stance on uh, making an example out of a library was poor or misguided. This is just simply, they're not going to be able to pay this giant bill. We'll slash it to a discount discount price. I will say the chilling effect here is, is what worked, right? They had this big fine. This massive fine sunk library with all sorts of litigation costs for a number of years. And that was a real drag on the project, right? It kind of killed this project effectively. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing sort of the, the whimper. This case go out with the whimper where you're going from $22 million to just over 100 It is remarkable to see that kind of conclude here. Again, not out of reassessing its stance on the facts of the matter, but just on the fact that this thing is pretty busted and there's just no money to go back to Uncle Sam in this instance. So yeah, I agree with David's big point that the headline here may be a bit much, but it is interesting to get some conclusion, at least uh, to this chapter.
2: The only thing that I want to say about that is, is that, I I mean, it's unfortunate that this is happening and I get that they have to file for chapter 11 bankruptcy and then the SEC has to take less, but the SEC can be a total absolute nightmare and say, you know what, we don't care that you're bankrupt, come up with the money or figure it out. They could totally do that because there's a lot of other court cases that we've seen in Chapter 11 bankruptcy or just in general in the United States of American history and law where they force you to pay this money back even if you don't have it. And then you go to collections and all these terrible things happen. So that is the silver lining here. But again, the whole entire situation of how the SEC handled it is very unfortunate. And it's really sad to see other countries be a lot more progressive when it comes to regulating crypto assets and tech as opposed to what we're doing in America.
1: Yeah. And I'll just make one final, I think, broad point that is important for people who might not have followed this specific project and the case. Another reason that this case is important is that the intentions of these founders were pretty clearly good. They were trying to build something that was useful and that people actually wanted. And even though it didn't get the same attention as like the Ripple case, there were a lot of people who were very concerned about this specifically because it was something that they used, you know, not even because it was a precedent, but because it was something that people actually wanted to exist, right or wrong, but it was something that people liked and, and wanted and that doesn't exist anymore because there was no, frankly, uh, available framework for them to conduct the fundraising using the mechanism that they thought was appropriate. And so that's important to keep in mind too, is that you know, on the one hand, I guess it's, you know, your intentions don't matter. And that's important to keep in mind for founders. Um, But also, you know, we are seeing this crackdown by the SEC impacting things that are obviously not just scams, you know, that are real attempts at innovation and building something. So a sad footnote, but uh, an important one, I think, there. Zach?
0: Yeah, no, I think that's totally spot on, right? Like this was supposed to be something that would you know, improve a lot of people's online experiences, right? This was a token that arguably had utility for users of this platform, right? And they wanted to sort of, again, act in good faith to create something that was of value, but without the clear rules of the road, it's hard to do that. Without a trust in a regulator that you can actually go in and talk to them and register and not face significant blowback after doing so, it becomes hard for, you know, positive actors to build these types of platforms. This is the big tension, right? You have all these Web3 advocates saying, hey, we can reinvent the internet by way of aligning incentives through tokens. And you have a US regulator saying, no, that's just not gonna work. Like that's just a money grab. And it really is sad in some respects that they're talking past each other so much in this instance. And I think that is ultimately maybe the lesson of library. But hey, Wendy, last word.
2: Really quickly, I remember buying um, library, again, not financial advice, um, way back in like 2018, 2017, because it was like one of the cool coins to buy. And um, I lost my moon back on Cryptopia.
1: Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> sad trombones. So sad. So sad. So sad.
2: Is identifying and mitigating crypto risk a challenge? Do you need help balancing compliance issues with the need to protect against fraud? CypherTrace, a MasterCard company, can help. They work with banks, governments, regulators, exchanges, and other crypto entities to identify risk, trace the movement of crypto funds, and help comply with global regulations. Visit cyphertrace.com today for more information.
0: Nice little piece here by David connecting the dots on the Santos linkage to SBF and the FTX empire. Just an interesting kind of footnote in this man's demise. I'm gonna throw it straight to David. What's the bigger point here? I mean, obviously, SBF and the FTX cabal had significant ties in terms of contributions to political candidates of all stripes. What's the takeaway from this piece as you see it?
1: Well, I'll get to the takeaway, but I have to kind of set the table here real quick because it's a weird situation. and. Back when the FTX scandal first broke, there was some examination of the donation records of uh, people who were there. And this is before we realized that there was a big straw donor fraud going on. But people noticed that three FTX executives, including Ryan Salam and uh, uh, two others, were maxed out donors to George Santos. And, and people were like, what's going on here? This George Santos guy has. Nothing to do with crypto, pandemics, effective altruism or anything else that FTX is interested in. Um, Puck News uh, did discover there was an explanation for that, which was that uh, there was a donor swap between George Santos and a woman named Michelle Bond, who was and still apparently is dating Ryan Salome from uh, FTX. So it's a weird personal thing. Not illegal, as far as I know, and according to Puck News, a political outlet that covers this stuff. So it's a weird little thing where there was no real substantive reason. It was just kind of some political machinations that led to FTX people donating to George Santos. Um, but you know, there are uh, a lot of takeaways in the bigger picture, because they were throwing money all over the place, and a lot of it was taking place through these straw donors in less uh, legal ways, allegedly, according to the charges that are filed now.
0: Zach, go for it. Yeah, I want to zoom back. I mean, I think it's kind of lost in all the chaos and drama around SBF and the timing when it all hit in November. But we got to kind of zoom back to DCCPA, right? This bill that was up on uh, on Capitol Hill, uh, over which there were a number of hearings where SBF was sort of the prominent voice of reason to the DC set about why this regulation was needed. So I did like to me that is sort of what's at stake here, right? Trying mm-hmm. to buy favor around a bill that would have arguably been quite quite favorable to centralized crypto exchanges such as FTX. So I did want to like unpack that and sort of see if there's any, I don't know, meat to Santos being linked to the discussions around DCCPA.
1: Right. And I can add to that a little bit in terms of, you know, we're still (laughs) trying to figure out the real story here, the big picture of FTX, right? And obviously, Sam Bankman-Fried had positioned himself as this philanthropist and had started nonprofits, including uh, Guarding Against Pandemics, which was run by his brother. And so there was this appearance that he was getting involved in sort of multidimensional politics, getting, you know, made to causes that he cared about. As you mentioned, uh, he was also pushing for this DCCPA. And so it raises the question, because we know Sam Bankman-Fried has said he wasn't actually all that serious about the philanthropic stuff that he claimed to be, that it was sort of a pose. And so the question becomes, was there any actual broader intent to these donations? Was he actually trying to prevent pandemics? Or was that just kind of a uh, cutout, so to speak, a way to cover the money that was was going to people? The same way he hid the fact that he was donating to both sides when the real goal was pushing this DCCPA, which, to be specific, would have, people argued, led to essentially a ban on DeFi in the United States, which in turn arguably would have pushed more deposits to offshore exchanges like FTX, potentially allowing Sam Bankman-Fried to continue his mega fraud. So this was some real high-level Machiavellian stuff going on. He was pushing for this thing that would have saved his scam. Uh, Zach, and then if Wendy wants to get in. Yeah, I, th- I think DC
0: CPA is like underappreciated as a major turning point in the story of SBF. I think that's when he really lost the crypto crowd, right? He had this famous debate with Eric Voorhees mm-hmm. of Shapeshift, who sort of stood up for the crypto ideals and ethos. Sam Bankman-Fried never fully embraced or was able to articulate, right? Yeah. Uh, SBF yeah, had Eric won over Yeah, really D- him season. in that debate. He absolutely did. And credit to Bankless for running that in its entirety. It was a great sort of piece of history before it was fully overshadowed by everything that transpired, I think literally the week after that was released. So just the, the sheer timing of it all, I think is just really fascinating to, to watch unfold. And may have contributed, again, I've speculated this uh, speculated about this in the past before, but may have contributed to people talking to reporters about some of SPF's shortcomings as it relates to Al- Alameda's balance sheet, which obviously set off the whole thing in motion. So anyway, I think just the, that, that whole episode in crypto, recent crypto history, where SBF was seen as like the trusted, like upstanding adult in the room, and then it immediately backfired and sort of helped (laughs) us get into this dicey regulatory situation that the industry finds itself in. I think it's just wild. But Wendy, I got a sauce to you. I want your take on this one.
2: Um, So would you guys be surprised if I said that Sam was actually bribing politicians to say terrible things about specific things in the United States of America Mm -hmm. to make FTX look like it was this fantastic company that was doing everything by the book? Would you? Would you? Would you? (laughs) Also, too, I find it very interesting that George Santos, I believe he's a Republican. Please fact check me on that. I just looked it up right now. The reason why that's interesting is we know that the Blue Party seems to be very less pro-crypto. But at the same time, I guess people are willing to take money from anybody and push whatever narrative is possible. Um, That's why I firmly believe public servants should not be allowed to take any type of money, especially for lobbying. We've got a lot more to say on this, but I think that we got to get to the next story because I can keep talking for hours, and I feel like you gentlemen did a really great job of summing the majority of this up. And as you know, i got to put on that tinfoil crown and keep the show interesting.
1: Well, keep that tinfoil crown on, because here comes WorldCoin. Uh, We have news today that uh, OpenAI CEO uh, Sam Altman's other project, WorldCoin, has raised $100 million. Uh, I find this insane for reasons that we can get into. I will limit myself, though, to saying that the thing that WorldCoin says is its business model does not make any sense. Uh, So it's very curious to see this much investment going into it and makes you wonder what the actual business model is. Zach, get in there. (laughs) Eyes.
0: Eyes is in the headline. So credit to whoever at Decrypt wrote that headline. I see what you did. They're eyeing $100 million because you have to stare into the orb to get your sweet, sweet crypto coins from this project. We talked about this last week briefly. I don't think either of you are on the show. But the idea of this project now being linked to the rise of AI, and now it's in this conversation with the AI takeover, is just a really fascinating kind of narrative pivot that makes sort of a weird-sounding project look a little bit better by comparison. So I wonder if that's sort of fueling, again, this this major raise that is reportedly in the process of being closed. (laughs) Because I feel like that is the shift, right? How do we prove humans in an AI-dominated internet? But Dan, so, there's two
1: sides to that, and I just want to get in because I think it's really important to understand. Yes, there is this like AI identity angle, but WorldCoin has also pitched itself as a way to distribute universal basic income. And universal basic income itself <laughs> is part of the AI narrative in the sense that AI people want you to believe that AI will destroy all the jobs on Earth and everybody is going to be dependent on redistributed wealth from some sort of you know, tax system. We can get into it, but this is a very dystopian project at its root in terms of the vision of the future that it lays out, where everybody has to scan their eyeball to get their basic little crumb of income while the robots and the people who build them keep all of the actual money. But uh, there's way more to say than we have time for. Wendy, I saw you wanted to get in.
2: So this is the thing, you guys. This is the thing. I've actually got a question. Why are we so concerned with regulating crypto in the United States of America, but we're not concerned with regulating AI when AI is an actual direct threat? Some aspects of AI are a direct threat to most American mm-hmm. jobs, let's face it. And when you think about it, the, the type of like everybody in America has a job. You have to have make a living wage. So you have a job to make a living wage. AI can basically potentially take those jobs from you. But And I don't even have the the numerical data, but how many people are really involved in crypto in the U.S.? And let's see kind of where the priorities lie. So one plus one equals five in this particular case. Tinfoil crown is very strong. I think the AI narrative and UBI works out perfectly. And you guys do not want UBI. You want to be able to work hard and to get compensated for your time and for your effort. You don't want to just have to do the bare minimum and go through life that way. How boring would that be?
1: Yeah. And the the regulatory issue is important because, you know, there is the jobs threat. There are all kinds of negative other consequences of A.I. But there is, again, like it's such a complicated pitch that they're putting together. And WorldCoin is part of the A.I. pitch. Right. Because you have to believe that A.I. is going to be so powerful. It's going to change everything. So you have to build this basketball sized machine and have people working all over the world to prove that there are real humans. It's all depend like, and if AI isn't going to change everything, this entire WorldCoin project is a pointless joke. And so it's all in service to this narrative that AIs are going to be like super geniuses that are going to make humans irrelevant. Sidebar, that's not true. But Zach, go for it.
0: I just think it's a fascinating narrative two-step, and it's working among some pretty significant VCs in Silicon Valley and beyond, if this story proves to be true. So anyway... Just noting that from the narrative, Hall of Fame, WorldCoin really doing it. Going from UBI to AI takeover. It's amazing. Anyway, that's it for the show today. I'm Zach. We had Wendy O. We had David Morris. We are The Hash. We are on Coindesk TV. We are also on the Coindesk Podcast Network. A lot of good stuff over there. Also, check out All About Bitcoin today, 3 p.m. Eastern. I believe fellow Hash co-host Jensen Sinassi is hosting today. So go <laughs> and check that out and give her a round of applause when you can. All right, that's it for the show today. We'll be back tomorrow. We wish you well. Talk to you soon. Bye.
2: You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members of FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.